Ephesians chapter 1. We're focusing this morning on verses 7 through 12, but let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure, to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained the inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The grass withers, the flower falls, but God's word abides forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We do thank you, Lord, for, again, for this letter written to the Ephesians so long ago, and uh, guided by your Holy Spirit, you communicate to us so many wonderful truths in this passage concerning our redemption, concerning our election, concerning the love that you have toward us, our adoption, concerning the sealing of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, and applying the work of Christ. There are so many wonderful truths found here designed to encourage us and enable us to understand your love toward us, your grace toward us. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our minds, that you would open our hearts, that we would be able to hear and receive and to trust and obey you. And so we ask, O oh Lord, for the work of your Spirit. He who wrote this through Paul is also the one who's with us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply this now to our lives. Open our eyes that we may see Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the purpose of the cosmos? What is the purpose of creation? Why are we here? Why does everything exist? Is there a purpose? As it says in my outline, unbelief's ultimate answer to that question is there is no reason. There is no purpose. If everything exists because some 
entity, some thing, lost uh, stability and exploded, then what's the purpose of everything? Uh, there's no purpose. The only purpose is what you make or you impose on creation. But who are you? And who am I? Do we? Are we God? Are you God? Can you determine what is the purpose of all creation? And the answer is no. But those who trust in Christ alone for salvation, there is a better answer. It is found in the word of God. Colossians, Paul writes, Him, in him, or by him, all things were created. So by Jesus, actually by the triune God, but by Jesus, uh, all things were created in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. And he goes on to say, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things are held together. Colossians 1, 16, 17. He created, sustains, and has redeemed all things for his purpose and glory. The right response is to acknowledge this truth and act appropriately. That is to trust and obey our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, the point is... Why does everything exist? Because of Jesus. Okay. Did you notice as I was reading the passage that I was emphasizing the phrase in him, in him, in the beloved, in him? I'm only emphasizing what Paul is emphasizing. There is life in him, and apart from him there is death. Life and death, blessing and cursing. And so we find at the very beginning of his letter, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay. I hope that we can grasp the importance of that. In Christ, all things are held together. In Christ, all things exist. The reason you exist, I exist, these this building exists, this world exists, this universe exists, is because of Christ. Not just that he created it all, but that he has a purpose for all things. And so we're focusing, we focused last week on the blessedness of God the Father, and because of his blessings, they have come to us. The blessings come to us not just in time, but before time. Paul goes all the way back into eternity in chapter 1, in the verses we see. We see in verse uh, 4, just as he chose us, notice that, in Christ, in him, before the foundations of the world. Before there was anything. There was Christ, there was the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father chose us in and he goes on to speak concerning predestination. In love, having predestined us to adoption. So not only have we, he's uh, chosen us in Christ, but he's also predestined to adopt us. What happens when you're adopted? You are now a child, legal child, of the one who adopts you. You're getting ready to adopt a, a, a girl in Poland. 
when the process is completed, when the judge or whoever signs the document, she will be able to uh, legitimately say daddy to you, Bill, and mommy, right? She's adopted. She is part of the family. So are we in Christ. From eternity, God predestined this, that we could cry, Abba, Father, to God, and not blaspheme, and not sin in actuality. And so he says that we have been granted from eternity this privilege, and that eternal predestination of adoption was accomplished in time through Jesus Christ. And that's where we are picking up now in verse 7. In Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So my first point, in Christ we have redemption and we have reconciliation. So that redemption had to be accomplished in time. So so Paul now moves from eternity past to time, in time. Redemption at the cross. Notice, through his blood. Redemption in truth. The Holy Spirit takes what Christ has done and applies it to us, regenerates us. Declares us righteous in Christ before God, adopts us, and is sanctifying us, and will glorify us. All of that, what is called the golden chain, it is happening in time now with you and me, if you believe in Christ. So redemption, he noticed, he says, in time, but he has also stated redemption from what? In his statement there in verse 7, redemption from sins. The forgiveness of sins. Is that important? Is it important to be redeemed from sin and the consequences of sin, which is death? And the answer is yes. There's a really good book. I was going to recommend it last week, and I forgot to, but it's called The Joy of Calvinism. And uh, if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to pick up a copy. But I'm going to read from it something that he said when he describes joy. He says the, this. He heard it, he was in a, sitting in a sermon, and the pastors made this statement. And he says he doesn't remember the rest of the sermon, but he remembers this statement. Joy is not an emotion. Okay. Does that surprise you? Joy is not an emotion. The emotion comes... Joy is not an emotion. He says, joy is a settled certainty that God is in control. Joy is a settled certainty that God is in control. That's our joy. God's in control. Um, and he goes on to say, we think too much about ourselves. We aren't just selfish. We're self-centered. Anybody else join me in that that's true? I'm self-centered. But he goes on to say something I thought was kind of interesting. Our worst, the worst form of self-centeredness is probably our petty, fussy, and narcissistic obsession with our own mental states. 
For some, that includes an obsession with our own opinions, carefully keeping track of what we think about everything. For others, it includes an obsession with the decisions we make. For example, some people are indecisive or fickle because that lets them wallow in the pleasure of being in control. While you're in the process of making a decision, you're in a position of power, but that power is gone as soon as the decision is made. But almost all of us pay too much attention to our own emotions. We're happy, we're despondent, we're in love, we're lonely, we're thrilled, we're bored, we're a bunch of drama queens. We're each the star of our own primetime soap opera. And then he goes on to describe that. Does that sound kind of shocking? You ever thought of your, our own, your own state, your own thought is you're the star of your own personal soap opera and you want everybody else to watch, everybody else to join in? He says this attitude not only rises from our sinful, sinfulness, it perpetuates it. And then he goes on to say, instead we think about how our neighbor's actions are making us feel, reducing the people around us to tools we can use for our own self-dramatization, dramatizing. And of course, an obsession with one's own emotions is a wonderful way to anesthetize ourselves to the awareness of God. I find the biggest obstacle to prayer, for example, is that I keep turning my attention away from God so that I can think about my own emotions while I pray. Am I reverent? Am I sincere? Am I sensing the presence of God? This brings us right back to where we started, all the way back to the beginning. Love is not an emotion. It's a way of behaving. To render love, we have to switch off the soap opera of ourself and shoulder the burden of loving our neighbor indeed, and not in cheap talk. And if we do that, we will suffer. Merely to switch off the soap opera involves a certain amount of death to self. To switch it off and then prioritize other people's needs above my own desires involves much more. As we have seen in the last chapter, it is the essential nature of love to be willing to suffer. Is that a shocking statement? I don't know if you catch that. But the idea is sin is self-centered, right? Sin is, uh, it's all about me. Sin is self, a self-obsessed life. Agree or disagree? Is that a problem you have? When you wake up in the morning, is it all about you? As you go about work or whatever, is that the primary focus? The natural man, it is. It's all about me. What does Jesus say? Deny yourself. Pick up the cross. Suffer. And follow me. The natural man, that is foolishness. The natural man, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's all about me. So what does Jesus redeem us? He redeems us from self-centeredness. If we are in Christ, where's the center of our existence? It's Christ, not me. Does that mean that I am nothing, that I'm irrelevant? No, I'm in Christ. I am connected with the, great, with the purpose of everything. It's a great privilege. It's a great honor. It is a blessing. Notice, forgiveness of sins. Do you believe, do you trust in the cross 
in the death of Christ, in the shedding of his blood? Do you trust in his redemption, his work on the cross? When he was on the cross and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you understand that he took your place? You were that one that was forsaken because of sin. And Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We have forgiveness of sins through Christ, according to the apostle. According to the riches of his grace, he goes on to write in our passage, in our verse. According to the riches of his grace. How rich is the grace of God? How valuable, how wonderful. It's important for us to stop sometimes and to remind ourselves what we have in Christ. Though he was rich, yet it says, for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He's not talking about money. He's talking about something more important than money. Life. What good is money if you're dead? Right? Can it take you with it? Can you take it with you? The answer is no. According to the riches, the vast riches of his grace, who he is caused to abound, notice verse 8, which he made to abound... Riches abounding toward us in all wisdom and prudence. His grace abounds to us. It is his wisdom. It is his knowledge and understanding applied to us that he chooses to overload us with his grace to care for us, to love us. But notice also, he uses the word prudence there. Anybody know the definition of prudence? Don't look it up on your phone. Anybody know the definition of prudence? Prudence is thoughtful purpose. Okay? According to wisdom and a thoughtful purpose. In other words, his abounding of his grace to us is, has a purpose. A thoughtful purpose. There's a reason why God blesses us. Okay. There's a goal in mind. What is that goal? What is the mind or what is the goal? What is the purpose of your redemption in Christ? Is it just for you? Is that what it's all about? Hey, I'm, I'm redeemed in Christ. Hey, check it out. I am the redeemed of the Lord. Is that the purpose? Or is that a purpose? with a bigger purpose? And the answer is, there's a bigger purpose. And Paul tells us what that is. Notice in verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that, see that verse 10? That. What is the purpose of your redemption in Christ? That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. 
So my second point there is, in Christ, all things are gathered together in one. Paul says in verse 9, the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will. What does that mean? Is his will mysterious? Well, at one point in time, it was. In the Old Testament, they had bits and pieces, but they didn't have the full understanding until Christ came. And now, that word mystery is something that was once hidden, but now revealed. It has that element to it. So what is the mystery of his will? Again, reading from uh, another author, his name is O'Brien. He says, Cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ are the central message of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So what does he say? He says he's gathering together all things in Christ. So that means all the trees out there, all the clouds in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planet, the, the stars, everything are being gathered together in Christ. The purpose of all things is Christ. He goes on to say, this opening paragraph which celebrates the accomplishments of God's gracious purpose in Christ provides a sweep from eternity to eternity and the climactic note is struck in the mention of the mystery of you know, the mystery and its content. Christ is the one in whom God chooses to sum up the cosmos, the one in whom he restores harmony to the universe. He is the focal point. Not simply the means, the instrument, or the rudimentary through which all things occur. He goes on to say, God's overarching purpose for the whole of the created order is included. The emphasis is now on a universe that is centered and reunited in Christ. The mystery which God has graciously made known refers to the summing up and bringing together of the fragmented and alienated elements of the universe in Christ as a focal point. All things are to be summed up in God's anointed one and presented as a coherent totality in him. Can you grasp what he's saying? We live in a fragmented world, don't we? And we're seeing it fragmenting more and more as we reject the Christian capital that was first uh, this nation was founded under, as we watch the world just self-destruct. It's frightening, isn't it? There's no law in order, right? Every man does that which is, is right in his own eyes. Isn't that kind of a good way to describe the world we see today? So when we look at it from a human perspective, it looks like everything is disintegrating. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Is that what Paul is saying? Or is Paul saying that all things are in Christ, or all things are being reconciled, and that the ultimate goal of even these difficult things we're going through is the bringing together of all things in Christ? Can that help you and me in the temptation, overcoming the temptation, is freak out. To say, this is terrible, and it's getting worse. No, God's in control. I have joy. What did he say, the author say? Joy is a settled certainty that God is in control. I can rejoice 
in the difficulties that I face or that we face. The universe is to be centered and reunited with Christ. That is what the purpose there in verse 10, that he might together uh, gather together all things in Christ. And so again, Christ is the focal point. Christ is the center point of everything. Now what happens? How does that affect me? Well, then it's not about me. I'm not the one who is ultimately responsible. Christ is. What am I called to do? Follow him. Listen to him. Do what he says and leave the rest to him. He will then deal with the results. I don't know about you. As a guy, I want results. There's a problem. I'm going to fix the problem so that I have the result, right? The results ultimately are in his hand. I do what God has called me to do, and he brings the fruit. So he says, basically, the restoration of all things in Christ. He, the purpose of your redemption is to gather you and us all together, united with Christ. Again, the focus is the blessedness, the blessings that we have through Christ. My third point that we should be to the praise of his glory. Isn't that what we should be? If our purpose is to be Christ-centered, then who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? Who gets the praise when we do what is right in the sight of the Lord? The Lord. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Anything I do that is of any worth ultimately is because of the grace of God. Who gets the glory? God does. And so, brothers and sisters, we are called in this passage to be Christ-centered mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, neighbors. Our lives are to be Christ-centered, not self-centered. Now, what will happen when we do that? Well, the world is going to look at us kind of strange, isn't it? Why aren't you like me? Why is it that Christ is your most important thing in your life instead of you? Because that's the way it is, right? In Christ, I have redemption, forgiveness of sins. I am in Christ. That's my identity. I am a Christian. I am a saint. I am set apart for God's use only. Be a Christ-centered person. Learn from Christ. Jesus says, take my yoke and... Learn of me. So what are we called to do? Continue to walk with Jesus. How do we walk with Jesus? Well, listen to what he says. Talk to him. Have that conversation every day. Okay, what do you want me to do today? Do you pray that prayer in the morning? Do you wake up and say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do at work today? How, how do you want me to glorify you? Do you have that conversation? Is that part of your life? Thank you, Jesus, for another day. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to learn? How can I glorify you? Be a Christ-centered believer in Christ. Beware and be aware of self-centered or self-obsessed life. Again, is that a problem? Do you have that problem? At least do you have the temptation. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm in this body. I'm in this situation. It's hard not to just focus on that and to focus outward first. But isn't that what love is? Love is being caring and concerned about some, someone, something outside of ourselves. So there's a battle there, isn't there? Beware of self-centered and self-obsessed life. I, I, I like what he said. Have you ever thought of yourself as in your mind having this soap opera? a show going on and you're the star. I was like, I never thought of myself in that way. But as I think about it and think about it this week, yeah, it's all about me. It's all about what I'm doing. It's how our people are interacting with me. That is something we have to be aware of and beware of. Seek to know him better. It says later, that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. How much time do you spend in heaven? How much time do you spend thinking about heavenly things? We're all going to, if, if you're a believer in Christ, we're all going to be there someday, and it's an eternity. This is just a blink of an eye, this life. Compared to eternity, it is smaller than the smallest grain of sand. Right now, we're caught up in the middle of that grain of sand called our life. But compared to eternity, it's there and it's gone. What do, do we want to spend some of that being becoming aware of and preparing for eternity? Seek to know him better. Seek to know and do his will. For example, consider Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a man that was zealous for God. Right? And he was concerned because there are these heretics that have risen up, these people that are claiming the Messiah has come, and, and he went out of his way to persecute them. And he even went to the chief priest there in Jerusalem with letter, to get letters of authority so that he could go off to a foreign country, to a foreign city, so he could arrest all these Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem so they could kill him. And as he's on his way to that uh, task that he had, the Lord Jesus confronts him, as you well know. Knocks him off his horse, He's on the ground, and Jesus says to him what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What is his response? Who are you, Lord? He knows who he's talking to in that sense. Who are you? He's having a divine revelation and confrontation with the Lord of glory, and he doesn't know him. He's been serving in his mind. He's been serving the Lord, but in reality, he's been serving himself. And now the Lord confronts him, and he says, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Can you imagine his life, his whole mindset, his whole orientation just crashed like crystal, shattered. And he's there blind, not only physically can't see, but 
He's lost, completely lost everything, his purpose and everything. And then he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And Christ reoriented his whole life. His whole life now was serving Jesus, being in Christ. And so what does Jesus say? Well, go to where you were heading, and you're go I'm going to send one of my servants, and he's going to pray for you, and your eyes will be open. And then you will then serve me. And the rest of Saul's life changes his name to Paul. We have this letter before us. Paul is writing in Christ to us what it's like to be in Christ. He has his eyes open. He has his purpose. His purpose is to be part of that gathering together in one, all things in Christ. So in summary, what is the purpose of the universe? What is the purpose of all created things? And the purpose is, if you've got, listen to the sermon, you should be able to tell me in one word, what is the purpose of everything? What is it? Christ. In Christ is the purpose of everything. Life in Christ. Christ. He's gathering together all things in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you. There's so much more in this passage. There's so much more here as we stop and we think about what it is to be in Christ. It is our glory. It is our purpose. Christ, you are our life. And we thank you for laying down your life to give us life. And that our life is complete. Our joy is complete. We pray that you do that work in us. That truly the joy of knowing the truth, the settled certainty, and that you are sovereignly in control of all things, would be our joy. That it wouldn't be just a nice idea, but it, it would be a reality that we would practice, that would be part of us. That no matter what happens to us, in life and in death, that we belong to you. We ask the Lord that you would do that work in our hearts that we would set aside our personal soap operas and that we would focus on you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.